me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. God is good all the time. You know, Mark, chapter 5 is a story of three very different people who have only three things in common. They're all in a hopeless condition. They're all desperate, and they all have nowhere else to turn. That's the three stories that we have in Mark chapter 5. Can I tell you that that hopeless condition they find themselves in, their desperation and having nowhere else to turn, can I tell you that was all God-ordained? Otherwise, we become dependent upon man instead of God. There's nothing wrong with seeking physicians, but shouldn't we cover it in, pray, in prayer, ask God to do miracles as well? Of course we should. It's not one versus the other. It's both together. But everything should be born of faith. Chapter 5 is all about Jesus' power, His authority. As the Son of God, He's shown command over the demonic realm. Remember last week's study, Legion, only 6,000 demons that were cast out of Him. 6,000 demons. That's a guy in a hopeless situation. He had previously demonstrated his sovereignty, his authority, his power over all of the natural realm. He just spoke to the wind and the waves, and it calmed down. And the disciples were all freaking out and going, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, he's the Son of God. He's the one who created the wind and created the waves. That's why they obey him. He created them. Why are you uh, thinking that's anything anything unusual. And now he demonstrates his power and authority over physical infirmity and either, even death itself. It's not written just for the first century church to say, look what a faithful God we serve. This is written to encourage your faith. Do you have need of a healing? Do you have need of a touch from God? Have you exercised all of your options and still come up empty-handed? Have you gone to physicians and emptied your pocketbooks out in co-pays? Have you, have, have you ever found yourself in a hopeless and helpless and desperate condition? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you had nowhere else to turn and everybody else seemed to be dragging their feet and the physicians didn't seem to care? But they'll take your money, make you an appointment for six months from now, in which case you'll either be better or dead. I don't know what that's about. But I know this. God still is one who answers prayer and exercises His authority over the physical infirmities that you and I bear. And He, is, uh, he has authority over even death, hell, and Hades and all of the demonic realm itself. He has, Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has all power and all authority? You must believe that. That's what faith is. Can God move on your behalf? Yes, but do you turn to God? The three people in chapter 5 did. They had other options. Some of them were chained or locked up and put out of sight. But when the demoniac was set free, Jesus told him, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, Mark and verse 19, if we could put that up on the screen, please. In a passage commonly referred to as the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus said to His disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, you, 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's our job, to encourage people to exercise their faith in Jesus Christ and Him and Him alone, the Son of God who died on the cross to pay the penalty our sins deserve. But do you believe that? That's what faith is. Yes. Have you made it personal? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Have you submitted and surrendered your life to Him? Some of us have. Some of us have not. But Jesus said, but surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. In other words, like the Gadarene demoniac, Jesus says, I just want you to do something simple. Go tell everybody what I've done for you. It's so simple. That gives each one of us a unique testimony, isn't it? What He's delivered us from, what He's delivered us to. Every one of us can find ourselves in these shoes where Jesus says to us, instead of getting in the boat with me, which is the easier part, I want you to go out and change the world. I want you to go out and tell your family. That's where Jesus told uh, Legion to start. Start with your family. Why? Because you got more credibility with them. You got mileage with them. You've got history with them. So you go to your family first, and then you tell everybody else that God puts in, in your path. Tell them what great things God has done for you. It's so simple, the sharing of your faith. You don't have to be Billy Graham to share your testimony. Amen? You just have to be you. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to embellish it. Just in, in a short Reader's Digest version, tell people what God has done for you. Did I ever tell you about the time I got saved? Did I ever tell you how rotten my life was and I turned it over to Jesus Christ and He washed and cleansed me of all of my sins? I've been trying to live for Him since. I mean, that's your public testimony. It's not scary. I just shared it with you in eight seconds. It doesn't take a lot of time. You don't have to bore people with a three-and-a-half-hour testimony. Just tell them what great things God has done for you, starting with your salvation, what your life was like before, how you accepted Christ, giving them enough information they can accept Christ. And then thirdly, tell them how your life has been since, because if there hasn't been any life change, there probably hasn't been a conversion. Because Jesus gives us hope. He gives meaning and purpose and direction to our lives. He becomes everything in our lives. Before, everything in the world was my world. <laughs> That's what I chased after and loved. I don't act like that. I don't look like that. I don't talk like that because all things have passed away. All things have become new. I'm not perfect, but I, like you, am a work under construction. But there is visible proof of that conversion. I don't talk like I used to. I don't think like I used to. My hope isn't in this world or the stuff with this. I don't care if I drive an old car or a new car. I'm just glad to have something to drive around. You hear what I'm saying? I don't need the richest, biggest, fanciest. I don't care about that stuff. I don't care if you have a Rolex watch. I don't want to hear about it. That tells me you're mired in the world instead of in the Lord. I don't want to hear about your stuff or how fancy or how big or how much you foolishly paid for X, Y, or Z. None of that stuff means anything to Jesus. Why does it mean so much to you? Could it be indicative of the fact that you have a spiritual problem? You're of this world. Christians are in this world, but not of this world. Do you see the difference? I talk about Jesus because He's my life. I read His Word all the time because I love His Word. I've, I've been filled with His Holy Spirit. He's making me a better person than I used to be. I know the world is going to hell in a handbasket. I know that. That doesn't give us an excuse to live like the world, act like the world, think like the world, or talk like the world. 
It's a supernatural life that Christ has called us to. That's what you see in Mark chapter 5. You got to back up enough sometimes from the text to see, man, God is doing miracles. He's changing lives. He's more than changing lives. He's changing communities. People are, are exercising spiritual authority. They're coming up to the plate. They're doing, God is doing marvelous things in them so God can do marvelous things through them. You see, you know a whole bunch of people, I'll never see this side of glory. Have you told them about Jesus? You got friends from back when you were in junior high or high school or elementary school. You got friends. Do you ever tell them about Jesus or are you happily letting them go to hell? Because we really don't care enough whether they're going to heaven or hell. Or we, have we said, well, I'm not sure I really believe in heaven or hell. Then you certainly don't believe in Jesus. He's the one who spoke more about hell than anybody, so nobody has to go there. He provided a way out, but he's the only way out. There is no other way out. And as I shared before, my friend and brother Mike Mueller last week brought up to me God's sobering charge to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 through 20, God said this, and boy, it echoes in my own ears. Son of man, I have made you a watchman over the house of Israel, so the word I speak to you, uh, give them warning from me. You tell them heaven and hell are real. You tell them judgment is coming. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will surely die for his sins, but I will hold you accountable for his blood. Oh, that should take your breath away. That should just flat out take your breath away. Yeah, they may be going to hell because they haven't accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But if you haven't told them about Jesus Christ and how you got saved in your testimony, their blood will be on your head. It's one of the most sobering, besides the Great Commission where he tells us all to go out and, and do what he told Legion to do. Go just tell people what God has done for you. Do it. Don't be ashamed of him. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me in this life, I will be ashamed of you in the next. I don't want to find myself in those shoes. Ezekiel's charge continues in verse 19, but if you warn the wicked man, but he chooses not to turn from his wickedness or his evil ways. He'll die for his sins, but you will have saved yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before him, he will die. But since you did not warn him, he will die for his sins. The righteous things he did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. So the people that you know but are too ashamed to tell about Jesus, someday we're going to be given an account for that before the throne of God. Now, if you're not saved, I don't expect you to share anything but the world, but the world and your hobbies and your pursuits and your this and what you did when you were famous and money and blah, blah, blah. That's all you've got to share with the world. But if you've got Jesus sitting on the throne of your life, if you said, Jesus Christ, forgive me my sins, I come in humility, wash me. Give meaning and purpose and direction to my life. I believe you're the Son of God. I know you died for my sins. Then wash them all away, Jesus. Sit on the throne of my heart. Be my Lord and Savior now and forever. If you have prayed that prayer, 
then you've got something to tell people that has nothing to do with who you are or money you earn or the things you possess or your hobbies. It's all about Jesus then because the things of this world, they're fading away, aren't they? They're fading away. Sobering. Thank you, thank you, uh, Mike, for bringing uh, that Ezekiel passage to my attention. I appreciate that, bro. It means a lot to me. Well, in Mark chapter 5, we saw what Jesus had told um, uh, uh, the demoniac to do. So, verse 20 of Mark chapter 5, so the man went away and he and began to tell in the Decapolis, the ten Gentile cities, how much Jesus had done for them, and all the people were amazed. Next time Jesus shows up in this region, there is revival. There is tens of thousands come to faith because of this one freed man's testimony. I once was blind, but now I see I was possessed by demons and living for the world. Even the world couldn't stand me. I got so bad. And he went out and told everybody that. You know, Legion's story tells me the value of just one life. What one man can do to change a community, to change his family. It shows me the value of just one life to Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the only reason that Jesus came to the southeastern end of the Lake of Galilee. The only reason he came was to round up this gathering demoniac and set him free not only from his physical chains that he was bound up with, but to set him free spiritually. Well, you want to be freed from the shackles of this world, absolutely. But I tell you, Jesus wants to give you life abundant. He didn't die just to remove your chains. He died to give you new life, meaning, purpose, and direction. One life matters to the Lord. You, individually and singularly, matter to Jesus Christ. If you were, can I tell you this, if you were the only person that had ever lived on planet earth, he still would have gone to the cross to pay the sins your, that, that, that you deserve death for. If you were the only person that ever lived, he'd have come, he'd have died, he'd have rose again just to give you an individual new life. But you've got to be willing to turn from your evil ways, forsake the world, to embrace him. Because you can't hold heaven and earth with two different hands. can't do that spiritually. You'll love the one and hate the other, or vice versa, Jesus said. So choose you this day whom you will serve. That's the end of the sermon before I get to it. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But know this, you will be held, you will be held accountable for the choices that you make. God loves you. He created you in his own image. That means a measure of his sovereignty has been imbued with you, which makes you the decider of your future. What do you want to do with it? You want to live for the world? Then you'll die like the world. You want to live for God? He'll impart new life to you, life eternal. That's, that's what it's all about. And you think of the individuals. I know that tens of thousands were following Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. But you think how many times it was just one-on-one. On one. And that's where most people are led to faith in Jesus Christ. It's just you and them. You get them away from the crowd, and they're more open to the gospel message. And here's why. Hyenas always travel in packs. So do worldly people. They, they kind of bolster each other up, and they joke, and they jive. You get a, get a bar crowd together, they will laugh you right out of the place. You get one of those guys in a sober state one-on-one, -on -one, and you find a completely different audience. That's why Jesus 
pointed out in this chapter how special the individual is to them because you can put yourself in their shoes. It's just me. The value of one life. One life matters to the Lord. Uh, Just off the top of my head, there's one woman at the well. There is one blind man. There is one deaf man. One man with a demon-possessed son the disciples couldn't heal. Just one paralyzed guy whose friends had enough faith to lower him through a hole in somebody's roof. One man with a shriveled hand at the synagogue in, in Capernaum. One short guy in a tree named Zacchaeus. One tax collector named Matthew. One zealot named Simon. One Gadarene demoniac in this chapter. One woman who has a a chronic issue with bleeding. One desperate synagogue ruler. Legion, if nothing else, tells me there's nobody without hope. There's nobody that's beyond the Lord's help. Maybe you feel helpless. Maybe you feel hopeless. There's only one place to turn, and that's to Jesus. There is no other help. There is no other hope. But know this, no one is beyond hope. No one, no situation is greater than the Lord. He can intervene right where you invite Him into and do a miracle work of healing and restoration, restoring that which the enemy has stolen from you. If legion can be changed, there's hope for all of us. Amen? Unless you've got more demons than legion. Next time Jesus came, what a tremendous uh, turnout that came as the demoniac was simply telling uh, what the Lord had, had done for him. Now we have the next personage here in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, in other words, he's back in his hometown of Capernaum. That's where That was his center of operations. He was not born there. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but the bulk of his public ministry took place right there in Capernaum, a little bitty fishing town on the north uh, side of the lake of Galilee in Israel. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Lots of people. Lots of people. Verse 22, and then one of the synagogue rulers, that is synagogue rulers there in Capernaum, Named Jairus came there, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly. Say earnestly. Ah, There's got to be a part of that going on in your life. If you're not seeking the Lord earnestly, don't expect anything to happen. He doesn't respond to lukewarmness or half-hearted measures in seeking him out. He pleaded earnestly with Jesus, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus... (laughs) went with him. Here's why this is remarkable. Jesus had been kicked out of this guy's synagogue. Jesus had gone there. It's recorded for us earlier in the, in the chapters uh, in front of us in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus went to the synagogue, and there he found a, a guy with a shriveled head. In fact, it was a setup. They put the guy on the front row, and Jesus was preaching that day as a rabbi, and they wanted to see what Jesus was going to do. If Jesus heals that guy on the Sabbath, he's a Sabbath breaker. So it was a setup. But Jesus, seeing that one man in need, decided, I'm going to pull out all, all the stops, and I'm going to heal that guy. And he healed him in front of everybody. And there was an uproar. Oh, no, you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath. And, and this synagogue ruler named Jairus was part of that angry crowd that kicked Jesus out of there for blasphemy. 
and being a Sabbath breaker. Now this schmuck comes to Jesus saying, help me, would you? I mean, the average person would have said, help you? Are you kidding me? Jesus' response is to me, miraculous all by itself. Mark chapter 3 and verse 1 and following tells us that Jairus was there. Here's the deal. If he didn't learn any, anything else in synagogue that morning, he learned this. Jesus can heal. And nobody else in the synagogue could. Isn't that cool? You can go to the biggest and the fanciest churches. That doesn't mean there's any power or authority there. It's just a big, fancy piece of architecture. But Jesus is out in the public spaces. He was doing things, and then when he went to, to, to synagogue, man, he was doing miracles left and right all the time. That's the purpose of church, so you can meet with God. That's why we gather, to let God do miracles. Our part is to exercise our faith. Believe that he wants to show up, and believe that he can heal your knees. Alan, you believe that? Amen. You believe, Christy, that God can allow you to speak in tongues and give an interpretation? Do you believe that? Amen. Dan, you believe that God can do miracles through you and you minister to your pastor in a public time of prayer? Do you believe that? That's what God is doing in our midst. He wants to show you himself. He is holy. He wants to make you holy. That means separated from the world, brought out of the world, brought to that place where you bow the knee to Jesus Christ and you're not in the world anymore. You don't adopt its values you don't think like them because the morals of the world are constantly shifting like quicksand. The Word of God stands forever. He is unchangeable, immutable. And as He did miracles 2,000 years ago that Mark records, He's still doing miracles today. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. He's not changed. But I think that Jairus coming to Jesus was, I'll bet you that was the most humble thing he ever did in his life. On his hands and knees, he's going to the one he just kicked out of church. Just accused of blasphemy. Just condemned him as a lawbreaker. And now he has to come. Here's why. Nobody else in the synagogue could heal his daughter. No one else could do the things that Jesus could do. Church couldn't fix his daughter. Orthodoxy couldn't change his daughter. The Jewish system and the Jewish physician, they couldn't do anything about his daughter's condition. He knows Jesus can do miracles. He saw the guy with the shriveled hand made whole. He saw that with his own eyes. Refused to believe the evidence. Kicked Jesus out of church rather than accept him as Lord and Savior. But now he's desperate. Now he is in a place by divine design where nobody else has the answer but Jesus. Jesus often will bring you to the end of your own rope because he wants to bring you to that point you realize Jesus is your only hope. I run into things in life that, that are impossible, are impossible. He fell at his feet. Verse 22 tells us this proud, lofty, important synagogue rule. He was the most important guy in the church. It would be like the Pope coming and asking you for prayer. Okay? That's what's kind of going on here. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. Do you see the humility that is necessary if Jesus is going to move and do miracles in your life? He needs some humility out of you. He needs you to come on your knees 
When it says fell at his feet, he was prostrate. He wasn't just on his knees. He's flat on the carpet. And he pleaded earnestly. Say earnestly. That's what's required. If your prayer life consists of, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's not prayer. That's recitation of a childhood poem. It's one of the things I have against the rosary. All the beads, beads can't save you. You can pray to beads. You can pray to the people that the beads are, are supposed to be representing. But only Jesus can heal. Don't go to his mother when you can go to him. His heavenly father is there to answer prayer. We don't go praying through the saints. I'm sorry. There's no ritual that you and I can do so that God owes you something. Put the beads down and pray earnestly. Get on your face on the carpet and God will answer you. Otherwise, religious and institutions and ritual, that can't save you and it can't do miracles on your behalf. Your need is always going to be greater than that. What many people don't understand is in verse 25, how come we've got this woman with an issue of blood sandwiched between Jairus and the healing of his daughter later on in the chapter, right in the middle of the chapter. It's almost like somebody said, oops, I got an aside here. Let's skip this story. We'll put this on hold, and I need to tell you about this. And you wonder, why? Why is this account sandwiched in between the healing of Jesus' daughter? Because that one individual is critically important to Jesus. But not only that, if Jairus saw a miracle on the way back to his house with Jesus then he knows that Jesus can heal his daughter. It's an encouragement to his faith. I'm sure Jairus would think, we ain't got time for this. Don't you understand? Jesus, my daughter's dying. Yeah, this chick's got an issue of blood. So? My daughter's dying. You always think your situation is worse than anybody else's. And God has to drop everything to come and minister to you. Maybe he's trying to teach us faith and patience. And a long life's journey between the times that he moves miraculously in our hearts and lives, he's moving in the lives of other people. And we share that in a place called church. That's, what, that's simply telling people what God has done for me. He will always do miracles. He has done miracles in the past. He is now will in the future. This poor lady, let's look at her situation. It is desperate indeed. Verse 25, and a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. I want you to notice and feel free to outline uh, 12 years. That's a long time. That is a long, long time. Think about this. According to Jewish law, she was unclean. She was a pariah in society. Her husband could not touch her. Everything she touched became unclean, according to Leviticus chapter 15. She couldn't cook. She couldn't even go to church. She couldn't go to synagogue because unclean things were not allowed in her. She was poor, it says, desperately poor, verse 26, because she'd sold, she'd sold everything she hadn't paid every penny to the doctors who did not have an answer. Eventually, she was ostracized from her family, from her community, from her own synagogue. 
That's what this woman's situation was about. Twelve years she's living in the shadow of rejection. Twelve years ostracized from her own family. Her own, she couldn't hug her own children. Do you, do you grasp that? She couldn't hug her own baby. She couldn't do anything. She couldn't get hugged by anybody. Jairus, on the other hand, lived a life of privilege, a life of health, an acceptance publicly for all 12 of those years. Isn't it interesting that she was never ministered to by Jairus or anybody else in Capernaum? They either didn't care or had no power. Her church had given her nothing. They had not ministered to her. That's the function of the church, minister to one another. Care, anoint with oil, pray. That's not just stuff pastors do. You're the royal priesthood. You're the chosen people. You're the community of faith. Do it. And that way we've got hundreds of pastors out there instead of just one behind a pulpit on Sunday. You become the ministering agent of God's Holy Spirit. Verse 25, this woman who is subject to bleeding for, for 12 years, I'm sure Jairus is thinking, we, we don't have time for this. But she, verse 26, had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. That seems to violate the Hippocratic Oath, doesn't it? Above all, do no harm. Really, sometimes do people put you on, doctors will put you on drugs. They gave one to my wife, Kathy, here, here a while back. and says, here, take this. It says right on the back of it, this will kill your kidneys. If it doesn't kill your kidneys, it will kill your liver. Some of the side effects are death, stroke, paralysis. Really, this is supposed to be good for me, right? Yeah. You have to wonder. You have to wonder. She is subject to this issue for 12 long years, and instead of getting better, verse 26 says, she just grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, literally the hem of his garment. All Jewish men had a four little tassels at the bottom of each of their garments that were to remind them when they swished and swayed to pray. Pray often. Pray often. Pray at least four times a day. And so what it says in the original language is she touched the very bottom of his garment. Now, the only way you can do that is get on your knees. Jarius had, had fallen on his face before Jesus, but she expresses humility by, by throwing herself on her knees, and she says, man, if I could just touch him, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. She was desperate, and that's why her need was met. If you're not desperate, your need won't get met by Jesus. You have to seek him earnestly. Say that again with me, earnestly. You have to understand what's implied. This is your part. His part is to do the miracles and healing. But if you're just playing games with your walk, yeah, I read my Bible once in a while. I come to church when I feel like it. I even throw a buck in a plate from time to time, you know, like on Easter and, and, and Christmas. That's then not the kind of faith that pleases uh, the Lord at all. <clears throat> She had something that nobody could do anything about, uh, not in her church. Although her church, the, the, the Jewish uh, Talmud, do you know what the Talmud is? It's not the law. It's not the Old Testament. That's the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Torah. But in the Talmud, which is an encyclopedia set of interpretations and myths and legends and stories and how you should conduct yourselves according to their tradition. It's not the Word of God, but they did have some remedies for this gal that were written about in the Talmud. 
I do not encourage you to go out and buy a set. They are astronomical in price. Uh, but, but take my word for this. The Jewish Talmud, this, this rabbinic commentary, if you will, about law, philosophy, health, and the interpretation of all things, they had a cure, and I'm sure she had tried it. One of the cures they recommended was carrying the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer or a cotton bag in the winter. That would, that would stop your issue of blood. Okay. There was another tradition that says, or you can, you can carry a, barn, a barley kernel found in the dung of a white female donkey. Well, that'll fix you. That, whatever you got, that'll surely fix you, right? Yeah, there's something you can really hang your faith on. What's the chances you're going to find one? Your situation is hopeless. There's a reason that we don't do anything that's listed for us in the Jewish Talmud. It is not Scripture. I don't read it. I don't read the Jewish apocryphal books. They are not of the Bible. They are not of God. I have no interest in any of those things. People ask me, well, Pastor Jim, I want to be a better student, uh, you know, uh, so can you, can you recommend some books to me? Yeah, I got 66 of them I can recommend to you. How well do you know them? Once you master this, I got some others for you. But master this one first. You want Jesus in his word to set you free. That's what it's about. You know the word of God. You follow the word of God. But I don't want to have faith in any of these Jewish nonsensical legends. Let's continue on down her condition, verse 26 says, grew worse and worse. When she heard about Jesus, verse 27, she came up behind him in the crowd, touched his cloak because she thought to herself, if I can just touch his clothes, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know that I'll be healed. Notice she didn't beg. She doesn't plead. She doesn't even ask. She doesn't want to inconvenience him. but She knows what he can do. She has faith in him. She believes with all of her heart. If I just, I don't want to bother the man, but if I just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed. Boy, that is faith. That is remarkable faith to me. And because of her belief, because of her faith, you know what? She acted upon it. I'm sure people are going, who's this fool woman on her knees trying to grovel around? It? What, what is she doing? While the tens of thousands are clamoring around Jesus, she pushes through on her knees. Sometimes you can see furthest when you're on your knees. The eyes of faith are actuated then. She performed what may have been one of the greatest demonstrations of faith in the whole Bible by doing this because she was earnestly, what? Earnestly seeking the Lord Jesus. And then... <laughs> Jesus was so pleased with her. He said, daughter, your, your faith has healed her. But, but look what happened. Verse 29, immediately, immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt that in her body she was freed from her suffering. Man, you know when you've been touched by the Lord. You know what it feels like. There's a newness of life that is way beyond anything church or the medical community can give you, a touch from God. I think every single prayer that we utter ought to be an attempt at touching the hem of his garment. That's the kind of prayers that God rewards. But don't play games with them. Don't play games with your spirituality. 
Don't, how much you read or pray, that's between you and God. But stop trying to impress people with how spiritual you are. Instead, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, James says, and he will lift you up. But the humility is required. Earnestness is required. I think every prayer that we offer up should be filled with the kind of faith that you see in this woman. I know if I just touch him. If I just touch him, oh, I don't need pastor to anoint me with oil. I, this is about Jesus. If I, just, if I pray earnestly, I know Jesus is going to meet me where I am. I don't need to walk an aisle as great as our deacons and elders and prayer warriors are in this church. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. So can I get saved sitting in the chair? Absolutely. Can, a guy, can I get saved kneeling here? Can I get saved in the bathroom at my house? Yes. Can God move in any and all of those circumstances? Can he meet you while you're driving home from work? Yes, if you'll let him. If you're seeking him earnestly, and you, this woman's approach to Jesus is far different than, oh, for instance, blind Bartimaeus, who was bellowing at the top of his voice, Jesus, have mercy on me, Jesus. And people are running and going, shut up. You, don't you realize how embarrassing this is? Can you quiet it down? And he just shouted all the, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on me. Instead, she, instead of bellowing in the loudest voice, she just comes up behind Jesus quietly. She's not drawing any attention to herself at all. Without a word, touches the hem of his garment. Why'd she do this? That's how her faith had reasoned. I know. If I just, I know. If I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. I believe that with all of my heart. Do you believe it with all of your heart? That's really the issue on the table this morning. You're in this woman's shoes. And if not now, you will be in the future. And you probably have been in the past. But understand that God will respond to your earnestness and your faith. But it is up to you to exercise it. It should move you to action. It did in this woman's case. Just like we need a physical touch from time to time in the human realm, some, sometimes you just need a touch from God in the spiritual realm, don't you? I mean, I've read studies before that babies thrive, children thrive when human touch is involved. Even dogs and cats respond to human touch and deny that they are psychologically far worse for it. Sometimes you need a spiritual touch from God. So in your families, I think you ought to practice the physical touch thing. Well, I'm not so huggy-touchy-feely. Well, come up front, get anointed with oil. We can pray that out of you. We can fix you. Well, I'm not, an, I'm not an extrovert. I don't care what you are. Are you a Christian? Do you love Jesus? Do you believe that he can work in, on, and through you? Yeah, okay, then all things are possible through those people that believe. Like this woman here. You ever been touched by God? You ever felt his Holy Spirit just overwhelm you on the inside? you ever opened up his word and he just spoke to you like he was present and sitting in the chair beside you? You ever looked up and said, oh, the heavens declare the glory of God? Have you ever been humbled to the point where he just takes away your voice? You can't think. You gotta, it's like you got a watermelon in your throat and you can't speak. And his presence is so overwhelming. I live for those kind of moments. I live for those kind of moments. It to me is a touch, a taste of heaven. And I'll be able to have that all the time. You say, well, Pastor Jim, I've never had that experience that you just described. How earnest are you in seeking? Are you humbling yourself, getting on your knees, prostrating yourself on the floor so that Jesus might move powerfully on your behalf? 
He's not interested in how smart you are. He doesn't care about your library or your wealth or your... He doesn't care about that stuff that the world cares about all day long. He cares about you. He doesn't want your stuff. He wants you, but he wants all of you. He doesn't want to settle for the 10% that you give him on Sunday morning. They say at any given point in time we only use 10% of our brain. Some people sleep through a church service and they're not using any percent of their brain at all. Feel free to bring your brains to church and give them to God. Any of you ever have an encounter with the living God? You'll never be the same after that. It'll leave you so hungry for more of God. Everything else pales in comparison. If you encounter the Lord, you know it. This woman knew it. If I just touch the hem of his garment. And immediately, verse 29, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed. And at once, Jesus, verse 30, realized that power had gone out from him. This is legitimate, dunamis. Power is the word in the original language. Power had gone out from him, so he turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Now, he's in a crowd of thousands. And I'm sure the disciples were thinking, what? what? Only 50 million people touched you, Jesus. You give it, what? What do you, what do you mean, who touched you? <laughs> who touched me in faith? Who reached out to me in humility? Who sought me out earnestly? Jesus would rebuke the crowds later on. He said, you guys follow me because I fed you. Because I did one miracle, you're all, wow, wow, wow. But you haven't experienced it personally yourself. You're just kind of looky-loos. You're kind of riding on the spiritual coattails of everybody else, but you're just following me for all the wrong reasons. You have faith that I can change your life. You have faith that I love you and died so that you could forever dwell in heaven with him and be forgiven all of your sins. Do you believe? if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. So Jesus responds that. He, he's not calling her out to embarrass her. He wants to reward her faith and give her the assurance, you're healed. You are healed. Don't, don't, don't get caught up in the emotion of the moment. You are healed, and you're going to stay that way. So he calls her out, and he rewards her faith. And everybody else is looking at her and going, well, she don't look like nothing special to me. She had faith. She walked in humility. She trusted in the Lord. Jesus said, somebody touched me. Verse 31, you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. Was there ever a bunch of dumber guys than Jesus' disciples? And he picked all 12 of them after spending an entire night in prayer on a mountaintop. Coming down, I'd have looked at them and said, really? Is that the best you can do? Four guys who smell like dead fish? A, a weirdo zealot, you got a tax collector. What, what are you going to do with this motley crowd? <laughs> These guys were slow to catch on, but it lasted a lifetime once they finally did. Changed men. Who touched me? Yeah. So Jesus kept looking around, verse 32, who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear. Uh, Fear is of the devil. God has not given us a spirit of fear or bondage, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Think rightly about this. Greater is he who's in you than anything Satan can throw at you. I don't walk in fear. I'm more afraid of life than death. But he's greater than both. 
This woman, knowing what had happened, came and fell at his feet. There's her humility again, trembling with fear, and she told him the whole truth. She knew something miraculous had happened, and she just touched his clothes. But she also knew the power of God had passed from him into her and that she was healed. You think about it, this woman had absolutely nothing to lose and everything to gain. We don't know how long it took her to get to Jesus, but I imagine that there was a whole lot of people that were trying to push her out of the way. You know, don't bother the master, please. You've had this issue forever. Nobody else can fix you. What makes you think he can? Well, she believed that he could. Finally, her fingers managed to grasp the hem of his garment. And I think in that moment, the world stopped. I think in that moment in her heart, she was never going to be the same again. I think that God had touched her and, and her life, her testimony, everything would, it was all going to be different from that point forward. That's what happens when you're touched by Jesus. That's what happens when you earnestly seek him out. He'll touch you and you will never be the same again. I don't want to be the same again. She knew she was healed and, and then Jesus breaks that silence in her thinking and asks, who touched my clothes? And so she comes forward, falls on her face again. She tells him the whole truth. I'm sure she said, I knew, Jesus, if I could, I didn't want to bother you, but if I, I knew that if I just touched the hem of your garment, I knew I was going to be healed. That's the whole story, really. Everybody else could do nothing for my sin. Such simple childlike faith she had. Such a faith we do well to imitate, to tell you the truth. You know, you see the power of the human touch here. You see the power of the divine touch. In this life, both are necessary. Both are necessary. In the Bible, you often see the laying on of hands, you know, with deacons and elders and healings and stuff like that. And you go, what's with the laying on of hands? Well, that's what this woman's doing with Jesus. She's laying hands on him because she needs him to move powerfully on her behalf. Laying on of hands. So when the deacons and elders lay hands on you in this church, there may be an impartation of spiritual gifts. There may be a spiritual healing, maybe a physical healing. But there's no magic in the hands. That's, that's Jesus. But there is a connection between a physical touch and a divine touch that I don't understand completely, but I know that both are necessary. If nothing else, go home and hug your kids. Hug your wife. Hug your husband. Tell them you love them, because whether they say it or not, they need you to tell them, and you need to hear it, okay? Now, by the silence in the room, that means a whole bunch of you ain't doing it. No condemnation, but your homework assignment is this. Go home and do it. Do it before you get out of the parking lot. You want to put a sermon into, into practice, you start hugging at the door. Just start hugging as soon as you walk out of here. Grab a cup of coffee, but do, uh, do something physical that expresses love. Wasn't it physical when Jesus hung on the cross between heaven and earth telling you and I how much God loves us? Here's your mission for the rest of your life. Write this down. Engrave this in the palm of your hands. Tattoo it on your forehead. Love God. Love each other. Questions. It's only two syllables. Love God and love each other. That one's harder because it's three syllables. But not beyond our ability to do. Love God. 
love each other. And there are practical ways to demonstrate both. That's what I see in this text and how Jesus responds. Your faith has healed you. Yeah, how about your faith? Here's what I don't want you to do. Please. How many of you believe I wrote this book? Good. That means none of you are morons. That's a wonderful thing. If I didn't write the book, who did? Okay, so it's God telling you to do the things that I just encouraged. You can fight me all day long. Don't care. Don't care. Don't fight against God. What's he require of you? Love God and love each other. So don't you sit there with your arms crossed glaring at me. Don't you even think about saying, well, I've got this excuse or that excuse. You're either going to obey what God just told you or you're going to walk in disobedience and then there's a trip to the woodshed waiting for you. You know what I'm talking about. Let God love you. Stop fighting God on this. Earnestly seek him out and watch him do miracles on your behalf. He's a God who makes a way. We sang that song, miracle worker, way maker. That's what God is. But our lack of faith and our lack of humility can stop that from happening. We can let our intellect get in the way. I don't understand. God, God didn't ask you to understand. He asked you to respond to him in faith. Give up your life. Give it to him. And he will do such things with it that you never knew possible. So the people crowding around didn't understand anything that Jesus was saying when he said, who touched me? Verse 32, so, and even the disciples. But the woman comes and tells us how grateful she is and that all that had gone on in her life. Verse 34, and he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And know this, you're freed from your suffering once and for all. Once and for all. Twelve years you've been suffering under this. But your faith has healed you. Now, we understand that it's Jesus who did the healing. But somehow or another, it works in concert with our faith. In ways I don't completely understand. I know that Jesus healed people in the New Testament Scriptures who didn't even know it was Jesus. Their faith didn't even play a part in it. But for those that have faith, like you and I, God expects us to actually use it, exercise it, believe it, believe the Word. Believe His promises. Believe that He is able and loves you enough He's going to move on your behalf if, if you seek Him earnestly. But that's our part. You don't do any seeking. Don't expect any answers to prayer. Well, I'm going to get somebody else to pray for me. Oh, that works for me if I'm doing the praying. It doesn't work for you. Okay? You, did you know you can pray just as effectively as any pastor, priest, pope, elder, or deacon? Your prayers are just as effective. In fact, maybe more so. We got some prayer warriors in, in this church that put the pastors to shame. You, know, they're, they're, you have that spiritual gift, and I praise God in heaven for it. But I want us to be open to all of the spiritual gifts and be open to God. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the household of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And I'm sure he was thinking, boy, if we, if we just hadn't stopped, maybe she'd still be alive. I, I don't know. But he had just witnessed 
the fact that Jesus can do miracles. If he can heal this woman with the issue of blood, can he raise his dead daughter? The answer is yes. Do you believe that? That's the test for Jairus. Jairus, do you just saw a miracle. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Ignoring what they said, Jesus, verse 36, told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. It's all about faith. It is all about faith, faith in God, faith in His ability to do miracles on my behalf. He responds to my faith in ways that I don't completely understand, but I am so grateful for this interruption of this woman I think was meant to impress Jairus with, with God, all things are possible. If God can heal this woman with the issue of blood, he can heal his daughter. It is interesting, the woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. His daughter is 12 years old. She's lived with infirmity. He's lived in his daughter's light, the light of her presence. She's known nothing but pain and suffering. He's known nothing but, but a public recognition and affluence and wealth and health. They couldn't be more polar opposite. She's been rejected by Jewish society. He was seen as the pinnacle of Jewish society. When in fact Jesus should have been. Little girl was about 12 years of age. Luke 8.42 tells us. And so they tell him, don't, don't bother the, the, the teacher anymore. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. In other words, stop walking in fear. He was obviously afraid that death was the end of everything. But I know people that are more afraid of life than death. Can I tell you, Christ died to remove all fear. Well, I'm afraid of this. I'm fearful about that. You will be paralyzed in fear. At the tactic of the, that's the tactic of the enemy. If you've got Jesus Christ sitting on a throne in your life, you worry about nothing. You pray about everything, but you walk in fear of nothing. I'm not afraid of life. I'm not afraid of death. He's got it all. He's got it all. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal. Then what do I have to be afraid of? Faith, you know what fear is? Fear says, I have no faith in God. Fear says, I live in bondage to the enemy like Legion who had 6,000 demons, but I won't give it to God. I prefer my sin. I prefer my situation. I make my excuses, but I oh, no, know this. Your fear is a lack of faith. That's all it is. You have no reason to fear. Fear itself is not reasonable. If you're going to fear anything or anyone, it should be God. Hold Him in highest honor and reverence. Jesus said He's the one that can cast the soul into heaven or decide whether you're going to heaven. That's a, if you're going to fear something or someone, it ought to be God. I'm not afraid in that sense of the word phobia of Him, because I know He loves me. I know He's got my best interests at, at heart. Mm. So, the story as we end up this morning's teaching, if you're not afraid, just believe, and they are polar opposites. The opposite of fear is faith. Verse 37, He did not let anyone follow Him except Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of three, Someone has once said, you keep your troubled children closest to you. Perhaps that was why Peter, James, and John were there, not because they were most favored. But when they came to the house of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion there with people crying and wailing loudly. In Jewish circles, if you had the money, you hired people to do this. 
You made a big show and a public spectacle of all the weeping and gnashing of teeth and wailing. And these guys are all professional weepers and wailers. <laughs> I, 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 just, I don't know what to make that exactly. It's, it's, like in, it's like hiring people to come to your wedding and act happy. You know, <laughs> I'm not wasting my money. <laughs> It makes no sense to me at all. The, the Peter, James, and John wind up being the inner circle, if you will. When they came to the house, they were all put out of the room, these criers, weepers, and wailers. They're fakes. These are Hollywood actors at their best. And verse 39 says, he went in and said to them, well, why this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead but asleep. And they all laughed, made fun of him. So they're crying professionally. One second, the very next second, they're laughing openly at Jesus. What a fickle crowd. Often in Scripture, the term sleep is used to denote the death of a Christian because it's peaceful. There's no anxiety. There's no fear in death. And you say, well, how would you know, Pastor Jim? You're a very young man. And if, A, wrong. <laughs> I already died once. I had a heart attack when I was 50, flatlined. Got a strip at the house this long and it says, dead. Lord saw fit to bring me back. I'm, I'm going to talk with him about that when I see him. <laughs> Can I tell you, having died once, there's an absolutely no fear of death. I fear pain. <laughs> fear death. I don't like pain at all, but I don't walk in fear anymore. Why? I have faith in the one who created the universe. What problem do I face that he's not greater than? And if he allows me to go through something, that's fine. It's not an interruption in his will for my life. I embrace them as the, his will for my life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He says he'll use it all. All things work together for the good of the laws, those that love God. That's me. I love God. You love God. Then everything, the good and the bad and the ugly, he's going to use for your benefit and his glory somehow, some way, someday. I don't know exactly how, when, where. That's between you and him. But then in verse 40, it says, they laughed at him. And after he put them all out of the room, he took uh, the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him went and where the child was. And he, he took her by the hand and said, Talitha Kulum, which in Aramaic, and Mark is the only one to preserve the original Aramaic that the common man of the Galilee spoke. And he said, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. That's no coincidence. And at this they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something. He, that's practical. He didn't want people jumping to conclusions. Oh, the Messiah's come to town. He's going to kick Rome off of the empire and, and he's going to elevate the Jewish people right here and right now. They had messianic expectations uh, that were wrong. And uh, he didn't want his popularity being used to foist him into a position that uh, it was not God's time to fulfill just yet. Uh, in practical matters, give her something to eat. After you're sick for a while, you know, or dead, uh, feeding them is, is certainly appropriate. Three different people, three different circumstances, but each with a unique and desperate need that only Jesus could meet. Uh, for all three of them, the, the, the test was just, do you have faith? Do you have faith? Do you have faith? Do you believe? Will, will you be obedient? He told 
the gathering demoniac, no, you can't get in a boat with me, but go tell everybody what God did for you. Will you be obedient to that great commission? Will you and I be obedient to it? What needs do you have that only Jesus can meet? And have you taken those to Jesus? Do you come in humility like all three of these people did? Or do you tolerate bondage to demons and disease or live in fear of death or life? There's lots of bondage out there today to fear, doubt, insecurity, uncertainty, even within the church these last days. Jesus did these miracles to prove to everybody, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. You need to understand this. I'm the one who created the universe according to Colossians chapter 1. He was the agent that God used in creation. All things that were created were created by Him and for Him. That's a radical statement. Do you, have you accepted this Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? If not, why? You got something that's better? You prefer your fear, anxiety, uncertainty, doubt? What have you got to lose but all of those things when you gain Christ? He was and is the healing Messiah that Isaiah had talked about. I think Jesus' miracles are simply a natural expression of His care, His compassion. He's not only a passionate person, He's compassionate. He loves you. He cares about you. He doesn't want you to, to suffer. The Lord often uses the trials of this life to bring us to the end of ourselves so we can accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's almost like I can see God in heaven going, we can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. Your choice. Well, which will it be, Bronco? Here's a 44 Magna can blow your head clean off. On and on. But the issue is, are you desperate enough to give it to Jesus? Do you believe enough that he can move on your behalf? Bless you, your family, your children. Do you believe that He loves you? Then give it to Him. God has let these people come to the end of their resources. He will let you come to the end of yours, but don't have to wait till then. There, there's other options. Come to faith in Jesus Christ. Turn your life over to Him. Stop making excuses. What are you afraid? Well, I won't get to go party anymore. I won't get to do my drugs or get drunk anymore or sleep around. Really? Hmm. What are you going to do when you turn 70? Oh, then I'll repent of my sins. Suppose you die tonight. Hmm. Lisa Marie Presley, did you hear about that? 54 years of age and died. And all the fame and wealth and celebrity got her where exactly? Now she's standing before God, and I don't know whether she was a person of faith or not. Her lifestyle did not seem to indicate that she was. But we don't know when the Lord is going to snuff out our light. Take us home. I don't know, but I believe this. He loves me. He wants to do miracles in, on, and through me. And it's in my best interest to say yes to him as soon as possible in all situations. You believe that Jesus can do miracles in your life? Believe him for great things, and he will do great things. He rewards faith. You have to exercise it. Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? Praise band. You got something for us? Pups is thinking, maybe I do, maybe I don't. Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves into your hands because of your great love, because of your care, your compassion. And that's what I see as the common thread in all three of these stories in Mark 5. 
you care. You care about the individual. You care about each one of us on a very, very personal level. And you're reaching into human hearts even as I speak now. I pray that every heart in this room would be surrendered to you. I pray that every Christian would believe you for great things. I pray that our faith would increase where we could see miracles done on a regular basis in our homes, our families, our church, our, our community. We long to see you glorified. I long to see you come soon, Lord Jesus, and establish your throne over the, the sinful nations of this world. I know that things will get worse before they get better, but come soon and give your people strength and hope and heart until that day comes. I thank you for who you are, for your great love and tender mercies. I thank you that you hear every prayer and that you respond to those that earnestly seek you. I do this day with all of my heart, and I pray that everyone here would feel exactly the same way, that they could, would seek you out today with all of their heart, all of their mind, all of their soul, and all of their strength, and that they would love you that way as you love us that way. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.